Because the meeting tonight is about hearing your input, okay? We're going to make a decision. Earlier this year, a plan to relocate Salt Lake City, Utah's homeless population to new shelters built around the state met strong resistance. Who doesn't want this shelter in any form, any way, any shape, in this city? What you were listening to is a clip from a town hall meeting held in Draper City, where attenders booed spokespeople and the mayor, who is presenting the case for the shelter. Nobody should have it in their city. Nobody. The incident garnered a lot of news attention and received a lot of strong rebukes. But in the end, it didn't change the situation. Draper City is not getting a homeless shelter. Go to our legislatures and our governor. Keep Road Home where it is! Other Utah cities experienced similar types of resistance, though less vitriolic. And in those other cities, the result was similar. They're not getting shelters. Mayor Troy Walker, who the hell are you? The thing that started all of this is that Salt Lake City is undergoing a plan to redevelop the area with the largest shelter and the largest population of homeless people. It's an area known as the Rio Grande. City officials are citing issues like drug abuse and crime and violence, as well as the interests of local business owners is the reason for the plan. I think we got support in our community. You know, I think people will, will rally. The plan was to build shelters and move the homeless population to these new facilities around the state. The problem is that these shelters don't exist. But the plan to move the homeless population is still moving ahead regardless. The city is calling it Operation Rio Grande, and so far, nearly 500 people have been arrested and hundreds of others have been dispersed into the neighborhoods behind the Rio Grande. It's a complicated situation. It's heartbreaking because hundreds of people are being displaced and sent packing with literally nowhere to go, removed from the facilities and resources that are actually striving to meet their needs. But it's also hard because there's local business owners who are in the city and in the area of the Rio Grande struggling to figure out what to do. And all of those problems are compounded by the fact that people don't want the shelters, which I don't think city officials could expect. Now what's interesting is that in 2015, Utah was being celebrated for having quote unquote, solved homelessness with a housing first strategy. NPR, HuffPost, and other major news agencies wrote articles on the amazing work that my state was doing. But today, homelessness is more of a problem than ever. The rate has increased the opioid epidemic has ruined lives without prejudice, and now caseworkers are seeing an even higher rise of young people on the street. Now add on to that the fact that the federal funding for housing and urban development is being cut, which directly impacts funds that flow to housing programs for the homeless and those who are on the verge of homelessness. And if all of that wasn't enough already, right now as I record this, Houston is recovering from Hurricane Harvey and Florida is bracing itself for Irma the largest hurricane of its kind ever recorded. 
Now, everyone's lives are upended by natural disaster, but this is especially true for the homeless, who have no safety nets or systems of support. Routers recently published an article about how the homeless population of Houston, who had been on housing waiting lists, are losing their spots to folks who have recently lost their homes to the storm. Now, I don't mean to make a moral judgment about that. It's a terrible situation for either person. But we have to note that the homeless suffer at a categorically different level during disasters. And it is, for the most part, a thing that goes unseen and undiscussed. And this doesn't even include people whose housing situation is already precarious and are one emergency away from homelessness. If you are at all like me, which I imagine you are because you're listening, then you want to do something. You see this need, you see this crisis, you're watching Hurricane Irma and Harvey, and you want to do something but aren't quite sure what. So the question is, how are people, how are Christians, and how especially is the church supposed to respond to homelessness? Not just in Salt Lake City, but everywhere we find it. Is there something that we can do? Or are we stuck? My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. The show is about exploring culture and theology like it matters because, well, it does. And that is especially true about today's show because your theology, your theology of God, your theology of the church, your theology of humanity directly impacts the way you think about homelessness, the way you think about your responsibility when it comes to homelessness. To help us think through this conversation, we're interviewing Fred Ligon. Now, Fred is a friend, he's a pastor, but most importantly for this conversation, he is the president of 3E Restoration, which is a nonprofit that was birthed out of the work that he was already doing in the church. And it is all about empowering, encouraging, and equipping churches to empower, equip, and encourage homeless neighbors. The reason I like to talk to Fred about this is that for him, the most important thing is actually seeing your homeless neighbors as people. That the real work is about seeing them, knowing them, and hearing them, and not allowing your judgments or preconceived notions to rewrite their story. Because what you might find is that when you really see them, well, you might actually really love them. And in really loving them, well, you actually might become friends with them, which changes both people. The show is going to be loosely broken up into three parts. But first, Fred is going to talk about what he calls our anemic theology, a theology that doesn't give us the power to think about homelessness well. I think part of the problem is that the local church sees homelessness as largely a fix-it-yourself reality that's a physical reality. So as a result of that, it seems to me um, that we think that people are homeless because they made themselves that way. So there's a lack of theological commitment to a higher theology um, that understands the reign of sin and death in the world and how that is connected and even upheld through institutions and systems. This is something I've always noticed about the evangelical church. That for some reason, we have an aversion to seeing sin as anything other than personal choice, decisions that we make. But what Fred is saying is that we have to understand sin in its structural and systematic nature. 
And that if we don't think about it in those terms, the way there are systems that are broken, then we'll never truly have a large enough imagination for understanding the plight of homelessness. And we'll never have an imagination for what our responsibility should be. So I think a denial of systemic sin, systemic injustice, uh, not being taught, sin being this own individualistic thing, Jesus being your own personal Lord and Savior, everything about our theological vocabulary um, works against seeing principalities and powers that work among us. And so, therefore, every person who's homeless did this to themselves. Mm-hmm. And therefore, every person that's homeless, all they need to do is get a job. But we don't think through the fact that if you're homeless, you have all the credit issues, the eviction issues. More importantly, we don't think through the fivefold that in that homelessness, there was trauma. And in that trauma, there's a malformation of the brain now. The neuro network of the brain has been completely rewired because of the trauma. And so we just expect this person to get a job, uh, to quit drugs, to quit drinking, as if addiction's not an issue, as if the newer networks of the neural network of the brain hasn't been rewired for those addictions and by those addictions, um, as if they have all of these relationships intact and they can immediately enter back into meaningful relationships, feeling safe, despite the fact that they have been betrayed and burned bridges, et cetera. We we don't we forget all that, and so I think we we ultimately see people in homelessness as problems to solve or projects to fix rather than fellow persons to be embraced just as they are. And um, I think that could be bound up in what I think has become a very poor and anemic theology of hospitality. This gets back to what I was saying at the beginning, which is the heart of Fred's message, which is that Really, at the very bottom of all of our problems is an inability to see people. Maybe we see a homeless man on the street and we read into that guy all of our own experiences or all of our own prejudices or all of our own worldviews and assume that his situation is the same. But we've not actually seen him. We've not known him. We've not heard him. So, so the way I try to frame it is I would, be, I would be happier if the word homelessness wasn't even a part of people's vocabulary and we started taking a much more adequate language and that's mm. call, it, call it social displacement. Mm. It's displacement. So a person is without a home physically, okay? So that's houselessness. But a person can also be without a home emotionally, which means the trauma in their brain, the trauma that they've experienced, the impulsivities that they've picked up because they are learning to survive, because they're living in fear. Um, that's what the emotional reality is, is it's dealing with the fear-based, fear-driven responses that are brought about through the trauma. Um, they're displaced emotionally. Um, they're displaced cognitively, meaning that because now I have these fears and I have this trauma and I have this anxiety or I have this depression or even these addictions, my, my ability to make calculated, wise, discerning, three days from now decisions has been, um, uh, has, been, has been pushed back. It's been minimized because of the trauma because now all I'm doing is living out of an impulsivity because I'm just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. So 
So I haven't had a Florida sweep in eight years and I haven't had a shower that I could take in eight years. All of a sudden you house me. I've got a shower and a Florida sweep. I'm not going to do it every day because I haven't had it for eight years. So I have to relearn now how to live mm. a placed life because I have been displaced for so long. Then the social reality is, for whatever reason, whether it's of my own making or not, the people who were supposed to be my web of connective relationships have broken. That web is broken and I've fallen through. Whether I burned it or whether I just literally fell through and they couldn't hold me and I fell through, either way, I'm alone. And so I'm not only lonely, I'm alone. And loneliness is hell when you're alone. Um, so I'm alone and I'm lonely. I'm called bum. I'm called all kinds of things. I've become my label. I'm homeless. Therefore, I am very mistrusting of people, and I don't belong. Uh, clearly, I don't belong under this bridge because you tell me to get out. I don't belong on this bench, so you tell me to leave. I don't belong at the bus station, so you tell me to leave. I don't belong in your restaurant, so you tell me to leave. I don't belong. Um, so homelessness is a social reality because I've been now displaced socially, not only from the social constructs of society, but also from just mere one-on-one relationships that matter. Mm. And then, of course, the spiritual displacement is fairly um, – it's not – I don't think it's what churches often think it is, and if I could be so bold to say that, but it's probably that too. But I would say that the spiritual displacement has to do more with hope. Mm-hmm. I, um, I don't live for anything transcendent anymore because all I can see is right now in this moment, and I just need to make sure that when I wake up tomorrow morning, I still have my backpack of stuff. And that um, I'm gonna that I'm not dead, that I can make it through the cold night. What Fred is talking about, he will call the fivefold realities of poverty. There is physical, emotional, cognitive, social, and spiritual. And his point is that if you miss one of these, any one of these, then you miss the full realities of displacement. We often think about physical displacement, actual homelessness, but totally miss the realities of emotional and social displacement, that you have no friends, you have no family, you have none of those relational safety nets that we take for granted every single day. And when that happens, you lose this last one that he was talking about, which is the spiritual reality, or what he dubbed hope. That that all of a sudden begins to crumble and you don't have a vision for the future. And so if the church wants to think well about displacement, then it has to think about all five of these realities and how all five of them are at play in a displaced person's life. Which leads into this next piece, what Fred will call a theology of hospitality. How he sees the church responding. Well, first off, you know, hospitality, in, at least in the, in the Greek framework, much less our Bibles, uh, was... Back in ancient Near Eastern culture, hospitality was a moral pillar upon which all of society was upheld. Hmm. So it was, it was moral to be hospitable. But hospitality didn't mean welcoming your cousins. It wasn't, it wasn't, at least in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it wasn't some sort of thing to do for upward mobility, right? It was just a moral thing to do where you would tend to the social, emotional, cognitive, physical, spiritual well-being of a stranger who was far from home. So you see it in Genesis 18, right? Like it's a stranger who's far from home. So what you have is you have in ancient Near Eastern cultures, hospitality being this idea that I'm going to make room in my life for the stranger 
especially those far from home, with some sort of demonstration of generosity and compassion. So then, if you look at your Greek Bibles, the word hospitality is philozenia. It's literally a love, a kinship love, actually. Kinship love, that's, that's, that's important, for strangers, mm. especially those far from home. And so when the scripture talks about hospitality, it's talking about something that we're not wired for in American culture. We're called the philozenia, but we live in a culture of xenophobia, right? We have a fear of strangers, but yet we're called to a kinship love of strangers. And so churches have been co-opted by this sort of North American understanding of hospitality you know, the kind of the kind of thing you can get a degree in, right? Like you can get a degree in hospitality. Or the idea that old Sister Norma is very hospitable because she invites people from church over for sandwiches on Sunday. Whereas the kind of hospitality the Christian church is called to pursue, and it's called to pursue it, by the way, which means to like aggressively hunt after, like to pursue a kinship love for strangers. That means then... I don't wait before I see a person living in homelessness. I don't wait before I see someone displaced. I pursue them, make room in my life for them. I leverage my power, position, and privilege for their good, and I do so with generosity and passion. And that's going to cost me everything. And who wants to who wants to pay that price? God, who is a homemaking God, is trying to birth into society a homemaking people where everyone can find a home with them. And then he's given that homemaking people called the church practices like Eucharist and, and you know, scriptures and, and prayers and, and all of these various practices that are supposed to form us as a homemaking community so that we would go out and tell a displaced world, people who are displaced socially, emotionally, cognitively, physically, spiritually, that the God of heaven and earth is our homemaker. We found a home with him, and you can find a home with him too. And you can do that, and we'll show you because you can find a home with us. So we can pull our goods and our material things. We can pull it all together because we understand that we're all a part of the same, and I'll use a Pauline word, household. This theology of hospitality means the church is a unique institution. No other organization has the resource, theological imagination to respond like we do. There's no other entity in all of the world that I know of that has that kind of understanding of itself. If we have a theology of hospitality, then we cannot not be a hospitable and gracious people who seek to love the displaced. But not only that, Fred will go on to say that not only do we have the right mind for it, but do we have the right posture and position for it? Okay, so here's what it looks like. Because I have that self-understanding, then I cannot allow anyone in my church family to live on the street. I can't, as long as I've got a bedroom, a living room, a kitchen, four walls, a roof. And if somebody says I don't have enough food, and they're a part of the household of God, then I should give them money to have food. Right? Like we should share our table. And so the Christian practice that we have is the Eucharist. It's at that practice that we remember that no one gets to choose who sits at this table. 
So why should we choose who sits at our tables in our kitchens? Therefore, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Mm-hmm. And then it's very practical. If you need a car, take my car. Mm-hmm. You can borrow my car. It isn't complicated. It's just hard. The only way this works is if we first capture the picture of us as a hospitable and gracious people. Because as Fred said, once we get into the work of it, we'll find that it's not complicated, but that it is hard. If I understand that homelessness is not just a physical reality, that there's an emotional, cognitive, social, spiritual reality to it, that there is a holistic sort of displacement with this, then I understand that giving this guy a job isn't going to make it all go away, like all those other traumas and all those anxieties and even those addictions going away. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, you're going to blow it 75 ways from Sunday, and I'm going to forgive you every time. Hmm. Bottom line is I'm going to forgive you because I know something about where you are. I'm not ignorant to your condition, right? I understand the reign of sin and death. I understand how it wreaks havoc on your soul. I understand how displacement has malformed just your very, your very being because of what the hell of fear and trauma and anxiety and shame and therefore adverse coping behaviors like addictions have done to you. And so I'll tell you what, because I get that and because I believe you're made in the image of God and because I am a homemaking person because I'm a Christ follower who's found a home with God, I'll tell you what, I'm going, I'm going to give you grace. Isn't that fundamentally what it means to be the people of Jesus? To be a people who give grace. Not because we're awesome or because we have all the right answers, but because we are a people who have received grace. Because every single week we come to the table seeking grace. So therefore, we can give it. It looks like not overlooking the person that's making you uncomfortable because they're standing on the street corner with a sign that says, need money for food. Stop and see them for who they are. God refused to abandon us, even when it was of our own making. Refused to abandon that person. Now, it's up to that person what they do. Stop and see them and get out of your car, park your car and invite them for a meal, invite them for a cup of coffee, invite them to sit with you in their space with a meal and a cup of coffee. If you'll just go get it, stop and be with them. Let them see that they are seen and let them know that they are known and then trust in that moment that the God who knows them best and loves them most may just move in that moment in a way that creates something beautiful uh, that could change that person's tomorrow. Mm. So what you should be able to do then is to call 10 other members of your church family and say, guys, we need to figure this out together because we can't abandon this guy. Whatever you do, Don't allow yourself to be let off the hook. And whatever you do, don't let your faith community off the hook either. You feel it in your spirit. You feel it in your bones. You know in your gut something's not right about it. Then do something. And don't let anyone else, don't let anyone else off the hook. Let's start with you. 
We've not answered that many questions about displaced people and what to do and how the church should handle it. Instead, the hope of this episode was to give us an imagination for what is possible, for what it might look like for us to pick up the theology of hospitality, to live into that, to not just drive by, to not just ignore, to not just call our senators, though that's good, to not just call our pastors, though that's good, to solve problems, but to enter in, to be present with people and to truly see them to truly know them. Because you might find, as Fred said, that in that moment, God does something and produces some crazy kinship love. And that, well, that changes everything. Now, before we close, there is a lot of easy ways to take what you've heard today and start to implement it immediately. If you feel like you want to do a better job at seeing and serving your displaced neighbors, then the options are almost unlimited. One of the best ways is just to support the nonprofit that Fred runs, an organization called 3E Restoration. You can find more information about the nonprofit at 3, as in the number, erestoration.com, where you can read stories read about the different facets in the nonprofit, and most importantly, where you can give. And all that money goes to the nonprofit. If you're against church, none of the money that you donate to 3E Restoration goes towards Fred's Church. It all goes towards the nonprofit and to walking displaced people through the restoration program, training social workers to help be relational, and even training churches to do the same type of thing. But all of it goes to that. Second, in light of Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma, we would encourage you to use your resources to support nonprofits that are doing work on the ground with displaced peoples whose lives have been even further upended by natural disaster. You can donate to churches like Ecclesia Houston, who are doing amazing work, partnering with churches all over the United States to serve the community. You can also donate to organizations like the Houston Food Bank, which is doing great work in meeting the very basic needs of the displaced population of Houston. And third, if you're in Salt Lake City, then I'd like to plug one of Missio's ministries, a ministry called Red Light, which works specifically with women who have been displaced and are either living on the street or on the verge of living on the street. If you'd like to serve and donate and get involved with that, which is all about building relationships and actually seeing people, then you can go to our website, missiouta.com, and under the ministries page, you'll find all the information you need and an email that you can send over to volunteer and to request more info. Now, finally, you have been listening to The People's Theology, a podcast brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the church or our podcast, you can check out our website at www.missiouta.com. If you would, go ahead and rate us on iTunes. And with this episode specifically, I ask that you would share it. Because I think what Fred has to say is really important. And I think it has the power to help us see differently and really to help us see people. So go ahead and share it. Go ahead and rate us on iTunes and check back soon. We'll have more episodes coming up.